42, oh, well, I guess every clock is different. Up there, I have 37 minutes um, until noon. But I, I practiced this sermon a few times yesterday and this morning and clocked in around 35 minutes so I can maybe breathe a little bit and not talk so fast. I know I get into the habit of that when I'm passionate. Um, but I, I'll, I'll try to slow down the best I can. Forgive me when I fail. So this is the start of what I hope is going to be a sermon series that is exciting and encouraging while at the same time convicting and challenging. And I should probably start by um, connecting to the Apple TV so that you guys can track with me. I believe I am connected, yes. So this series is sort of a, a little play on words. I've entitled it, Wailed On by the Book of Jonah. And this is part one, an introduction, or how I learned to stop running and love mercy. Now, before we begin, I, I really need to give credit where credit is due. I need to thank Pete Enns and Jared Bias with the Bible for Normal People podcast, Rob Bell, Ellen White, Tim Mackey with the Bible Project, David Asherick for his sermon series entitled In the Felly of a Bish, numerous Bible commentaries, and finally, the Bible itself for giving me such a rich tapestry and so many amazing resources to work from um, in putting this sermon series together. But all that being said, while most of us have a basic understanding of the book of Jonah, I found that we typically know about it because of things like children's storybooks and veggie tales, as opposed to having an intimate knowledge with the text itself. And the problem here is that most of these Bible stories, when they're told in a, a children's storybook, they get watered down and simplified. And before we know it, all of these beautiful, rich, deep Old Testament stories get sort of um, boiled down to some bland moral truth like be good, be nice, be friendly. So I, I think that really to see this and to understand uh, how problematic this can sometimes be, we need to look no further than the story of Jonah. Most presentations on this book zero in on one aspect of the story, which is what? Jonah and the, yeah, Jonah and the whale, right? <laughs> um, I did a simple search on Amazon and looked at the top books, the top sellers that have to do with the story of Jonah, and this is what I found. What is the common theme there? It's, it's the whale, right? Um, first off, the Bible doesn't say anything about a whale. Um, it, it, it talks about a great fish. Second, this fish is only mentioned in three verses, three verses in the entire book, three verses. So I'm going to say this, and I'm gonna say it a few more times before we wrap up today. The fish is not the main thing. The fish is not the main thing. To make the fish into the main focus of the story is to completely miss the point. It completely misses what this story is really about. So the book of Jonah, it's a part of the Holy Scriptures. And the purpose of the Scriptures is not to just entertain little children. 
And its purpose is not to just teach us about great fish. The purpose of the scriptures are to reveal the character of God and to reveal Jesus and his character and purposes to us and also to impart wisdom. So whatever the book of Jonah is about, it's gonna be doing these three things. Now, the narrative of Jonah does make for a great children's story. I'm not going to deny that, but to really get the point, you kind of need to be an adult. You need to have some life experience because this story talks about some intense life experiences. And so the book of Jonah, if you study it out and you compare it to other books in the scriptures, it's one of the most intricate books in all of scripture. And we will soon find that it's full of wit, irony, sarcasm, and yes, even humor. We will see that Jonah represents the covenant people of God. Yet Jonah is not painted as a good guy. The writer of this story paints him in a very negative light. And if you pay attention to this story, you will find that it's talking about me, you, us. When it's talking about Jonah, it's talking about us. It's a gut punch and a jolting reality. Thus the, the title of the sermon series, Wailed On by the Book of Jonah. This story is aimed at exposing the worst tendencies that tend to form inside God's covenant people, which are pride, hard-heartedness, judgmentalism, tribalism, small-mindedness, and the, ability, the inability to let God's grace grow, change, and surprise us, and to explode the boundaries of what we think is possible in this world. It's one of those things where you think you're just reading this really fun, exciting adventure story, but you soon realize that you're just being punched in the gut. This story is talking about us. This is the book of Jonah. So, Buckle up. Now, before we get into the actual story, we need to talk about what the book of Jonah actually is. There's no other book in the Bible quite like this book. There's no other book that has this sort of unique storytelling style to it. And if you read through all of the books and commentaries and articles and listen to all the sermons about the book of Jonah, you will continue to come across four different views or options concerning this book and what it is. So I just want to share those four options with you briefly. Option number one, Jonah was a historical figure and the book of Jonah presents a historically accurate story. So that's one of the options. The second option is Jonah was not a historical figure and the book of Jonah is a type of parable, allegory, or satire used to prove spiritual truths. Option three, Jonah was a historical figure, but the story depicted in the book of Jonah is a type of parable, allegory, or satire used to prove spiritual truths. And finally, option four, which is kind of a mixture of options one and three, Jonah is a historical figure. And the book of Jonah is historically accurate in most cases, but there are some story details that are written in satirical or ironic language. Now, before we go any further, I want to say that I am not naive and that I realize that there are people sitting here today and watching online that will fit into all four of these views, any of these options. 
and that's okay. But what I would like for you to do is simply let go of your desire to be right and just go along for the ride with this story. Leave your preconceived notions at the door. Let the book of Jonah take you where it wants to take you. Let God speak to you through this book, no matter which of these four options you vibe with the closest. Once we get into chapter two of this book, we see that Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. He then prays in the fish, and three days later, he gets vomited up, still alive, onto dry land. And now, I know that some people, when they hear this stuff, they instantly respond with a roll of the eyes and a a sigh, and they say something like this, really? Have we not moved away from this type of magical, mythical thinking? Haven't we all outgrown these childish fairy tales? Aren't these sorts of wild and impossible claims the same ones that have turned people off from the Bible? But then those on the opposite extreme might say something like this. If the Bible says a man was swallowed by a fish, then a man was swallowed by a fish. If you deny that this story happens just as the author states, then what about other Bible stories? If you can deny this one, what's to keep you from denying all of the other miraculous events? And if you deny this one and affirm others, aren't you simply picking and choosing what you want to believe? Now, in my personal opinion, neither of these hardline ways of viewing this story are very helpful when you're trying to find out what is this story trying to say. And if you want to know what I think, I don't think it matters what you believe about a man being swallowed by a fish, because once again, the fish is not the main thing. If you don't believe it literally happened, that's fine. People throughout the centuries have been perfectly fine reading this story as a parable about forgiveness. But the one problem I can see that can come from this sort of thinking for those that deny Jonah being swallowed by a fish, not from a literary perspective, but from the perspective of, ah, those things just don't happen anymore. This leads to a number of questions. Do we only affirm that which can be proven in a lab? Can we only believe things that make sense to us? And so I found this following quote very helpful when looking at this topic. This is from Rob Bell's book, What is the Bible? If we reject all inexplicable events of all stories because we have made up our mind ahead of time that such things aren't possible, we run the risk of shrinking the world down to what we can comprehend. And what fun is that? What fun is that indeed? It's as if we are children and our imaginations and creativity are just running rampant and then we grow up and we forget all of that. We forget a sense of humor and we forget creativity and we forget allowing God to wow us and surprise us and amaze us along the way. So with that being said, there is the other extreme. I keep going back and forth between these two extremes. There are those who say, of course he was swallowed by a fish because that's what the story says. Okay, that's fine. But there is, once again, I believe, a problem that can arise if you take this hardline stance too far. It's possible to affirm the literal fact of Jonah being swallowed alive by a fish, making that the entire point, the entire crux of the story, to the point where you defend that, argue that, believe that. You spend all of your time, energy, and focus defending the swallowed by a fish aspect to the point that you miss the entire point 
of the story. The point about God's redeeming love, allowing that to flow through us to the extent that we can love and even bless our enemies. Arguing about how it literally happened is the easiest way to avoid facing those people in your life that you need to forgive and love and bless. It's easy to debate about the fish aspect of the story and to allow it, allow it to provide a distraction, a distraction from the tensions of the story that have the potential to confront us with a kind of love that can transform us from the inside out into mature, grace-filled Christians, people who love everyone, even their enemies. So it's possible to defend the literal facts of the story where we miss the actual point of the story. The point that can actually change your heart, that can change your life. So you can argue endlessly about the science of fish and life and biology, thinking that you are defending truth or pointing out the ridiculous nature of a man being swallowed by a fish miracle, only to discover that everyone in this argument on both sides of the aisle has conveniently found a way to avoid the real, personal, and convicting questions that the story raises concerning what is actually lurking deep within each one of our hearts. Now, I've got all that out of the way, so I can say that these arguments, these four different options are not going to be the focus of this sermon series. I've gotten that out of the way for a reason, because here's the problem. What has happened for the most part over the last 100 years or so in terms of studying this, talking about it, scholarship uh, concerning the book of Jonah is that because the fish was made into the main thing, the choice between these four different options has all of a sudden become some sort of litmus test, whether you actually believe in miracles or not. If you take the view that this book is a parable, then you don't believe in miracles and you're sliding towards theological liberalism and you're denying the truthfulness of the Bible, just stop that, stop, stop. This is the wrong starting point altogether because once again, the fish is not the main thing. I want to let the voice of God to speak through this story. I want to humble myself before God's word, not telling it what I think it ought to be, but let the author tell me what kind of story he is writing. Now, here's what's interesting. No matter which of the four options that you hold to, the book of Jonah is very unique in how it tells its story. It doesn't give any dates. Other than Jonah, it doesn't give any names. Now, this is really curious because usually when biblical authors are telling stories, like about Elijah or David or the four biographies of Jesus' ministry in, in the Gospels, they simply put the historical claim out there, just front and center. They tell you names and dates and other events that are going on in history. But the book of Jonah has a different style. It has a different feel. And what all four camps, whatever of the four options they hold to, what they all agree on is that the book of Jonah is an amazing piece of literary storytelling. You haven't read a story quite like the story of Jonah. 
And so the story, this book of Jonah, it reads similar to two different forms of literature that we have in our culture. And those two forms are satire and comic book. The storytelling uh, style of this book is satire. So if you're not sure what satire is, just think Saturday Night Live. Satire stories are stories in which you take popular or well-known figures who are typically generic characters. So on Saturday Night Live, they typically take political figures or religious figures or celebrities. Then they place them in ridiculous and extreme stories or circumstances that highlight how flawed, how human, and how messed up these people are. They become the butt of the joke. And you sit back and laugh and you say, oh, this is so absurd. Oh, this is so ridiculous. But satires are not concerned with telling you about some event that took place. Their goal is to critique you, the reader, while at the same time getting you to laugh along as they are making fun of you. That's just like SNL, right? They're making fun of American culture, which is you, which is me, but you're laughing while they're doing it. And this is exactly the book of Jonah. This book is full of stock generic characters. And so you have this, the good guy, right? The prophet, the man of God, Jonah. And he's the one who immediately runs away from God. This doesn't make much sense. He's actually the most hard-hearted and hateful person in this entire story. And once again, this is the man of God. This is the prophet of the Lord. And how is he acting? I mean, how, how do we act on a daily basis? We're supposed to be representatives of the Lord. How, how do we treat people? How do we react? And the story eventually ends with him complaining, wanting to die, and chewing God out for being too merciful. <laughs> this is Jonah. This is Jonah. That's the man of God in the story. And then you have the bad guys, right? The, the he, heathen pagan sailors in chapter one. And eventually then you see the big, bad Ninevites. Yet they all have this sort of like paper thin conscience and they respond to God and quickly turn their hearts towards him. Even the cows repent in Nineveh. Everything is just kind of satirical, extreme and crazy in the book of Jonah. So that is satire. Nobody acts according to their stereotype. You have the pagans acting like followers of Yahweh, and you have the follower of Yahweh acting like a pagan. And then you have this other feature, this comic book style. Everything in this story is over the top. Everything is over the top. And sometimes it's hard to see that in the English, but in the Hebrew, it just smacks you in the face because there's a, there's a word that's translated as great or huge, and that's the Hebrew word gadol. In this small book, only four chapters and short chapters at that, we see the word gadol used 15 times, 15 times. Everything's huge in the book of Jonah. It's the kind of story you'd get if Donald Trump was telling it, Right? I mean, just everything is huge. The wind is huge, the storm is huge, the ship is huge, the fish is huge, the, solar, the uh, sailor's fear is huge, the city is huge. It's just like everything's huge, huge, huge. The city is so huge, it says it takes three days to walk through, which any ancient reader would read that and be like, oh, LOL, that's, that's a good one. This, this is a good one. Because that's like a 45-mile uh, wide city, 
and no city in the ancient world was 45 miles wide. We know that. And we know that Nineveh was only seven miles wide. But at the time, that was huge. That was massive. That was about as big as it gets. So it's blowing everything out of proportion. But the point is, uh, this, this city, it's significant. It's massive. It's big. Sort of like when, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you guys have that friend who goes fishing quite often. And um, as the story gets retold about the fish that they, they caught, it keeps growing and, and growing. You know, they, they catch this little fish. And by the end of the day, they've told 10 people. And now it's like, oh, is this big? And I was having to fight to pull it in. So Jonah is hugely happy and he's hugely angry. It's sort of like he's, I don't know, manic depressive or something. He's pretty much the crazy guy who needs to see his ancient therapist. That's Jonah. That's who we're presented with in this book. So do you, are you starting to get the picture here? Everything is huge and massive and crazy and extreme. And the author is getting you wrapped up in this exciting story so that you let your guard down, so that you let your guard down. You're so caught up in it that you find yourself pointing at Jonah, same way you might point at Saturday Night Live. Oh, look how stupid and silly that guy is. And you laugh and you carry along and you just can't understand how anyone could be so dense. But by the time you finish the story, you're putting your foot in your mouth and you're saying, oh, wow, that's me. That's me. That's the power of the book of Jonah. It's the ancient biblical Saturday Night Live comic book. And most of us don't expect this sort of thing from the Bible. We simply miss it. And if you don't think that there is humor or satire or irony in the Bible, of course you're gonna miss it. And you're also gonna be very confused and probably angered when you start reading the words of Jesus Um, because he uses a lot of humor, satire, and irony as well. So I hope that by the end of this sermon series, which I know that last week I was talking like, you know, it might be, oh, seven, eight, nine messages long. I've since repented. Um, So we're probably looking at maybe five or six total. Um, But I hope by the end of this, you're able to just appreciate how astounding and strange and powerful and life-changing the book of Jonah really is. So that's the introduction. Now the word of the Lord came to the son, to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, nobody's laughing. You guys were supposed to laugh there. Let, let, let me help you out a little bit. So the name Jonah means dove, and Amittai means faithfulness. You get that? A dove in the Bible, it represents innocence and purity. So here is Jonah, the dove of faithfulness which is hilarious because he becomes, he turns out to be the least faithful person in the entire book. So once again, we're a little removed from that society and we don't understand that names meant things and represented different things. But for an ancient reader, you, if you're aware of this story and you know what's gonna happen with Jonah, you read those first words and it's funny, it's comical. Here is this prophet of God the dove of righteousness, the dove of faithfulness. And then we see how he acts. Verse two, God speaking, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So Nineveh was the capital city of the ancient Assyrians. 
And Assyria was this powerful empire that actually wiped out the 10 tribes of Israel. They were bad guys and they were the most brutal, oppressive, and violent of the ancient empires. Their general practice was to plunder a city and then take the leaders and skin them alive in front of everybody else before they transported or deported everybody else off to Assyria. It was brutal, horrifying, sadistic. So God sends Jonah, son of faithfulness. And how does Jonah react? Verse three, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. Well, at least he paid the fare. He's, he's an honest man, right? But what was Jonah's goal here? What was his goal in running? You know, he, he says it right there in the verse. He was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Once again, you're supposed to laugh. Like this is getting pretty comical here. Like, how is this prophet of God, this guy who's supposed to have this intimate, personal relationship with the creator of the universe, how is he acting? What is he thinking? What is he believing? So I wanna show you a map so that you can better understand just how hard Jonah tried to get away. So you see there Joppa, where Jonah was, and Nineveh to the northeast, 550 miles away. And Jonah went to Tarshish, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. So it's not like he didn't give it his best shot, right? I mean, if you're gonna try to run from the presence of God, you better go all the way. God calls Jonah to go east and Jonah goes west. Tarshish wasn't just a little west either. It was the edge of the known world at the time. He went as far as he could. This is crazy. Like, do you see that? The author really wants you to see that. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. Shouldn't he be aware of Psalm 139? Psalm 139, seven, that says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? This is rich. This is rich. He had to be familiar with this Psalm. There's something going on inside Jonah's heart and inside Jonah's head. Something that has scrambled his view of reality. So everything is rich, everything is huge, everything is crazy and upside down in this story. Jonah is the only prophet in the Bible who actually attempts to run and hide from God, right? Like we see Adam and Eve do that, but I mean, you know, we can give them a pass, right? Eh, they didn't know any better. First, first people... We don't see it again, but then Jonah comes. Oh, I don't learn from others' mistakes. I gotta, I gotta learn from my own. I, I, I personally can relate to that one. But why? Why does he do this? He's a prophet, supposedly this faithful and righteous man, yet he is running farther from God than anyone else in this story. Why? Why does he do this? Try to put yourself into Jonah's shoes. Remember, the Assyrians practiced the art of skinning people alive. So, you know, keep, keep that in mind. This would be like um, if God called you to go into a stronghold city of ISIS and to carry around a sign that said, down with ISIS. That's not going to end well, right? 
That's not how you get things accomplished. So maybe he's scared. Maybe Jonah is simply just scared, right? No, that's not why. Chapter four tells us why. But before we get to chapter four, chapter three, Jonah preaches a, in, in the Hebrew, a five-word sermon. And it's so successful that the, the city and the king and even the cows repent. But to Jonah, the fact that the Ninevites can receive mercy doesn't fly with him. It just seems wrong. Where's the justice in that? He becomes angry and says, this is in chapter four, verse two, ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Dove, son of faithfulness, right? So he tells us why he ran. And it was not because of fear. He knew that somehow Yahweh would find a way to bring his grace and his mercy to this wicked group of people. He knew that somehow this was going to have a happy ending and Jonah did not want a happy ending for his most hated enemies. So here is where we get to the whole crux of the matter. Jonah has a plan. He has a wonderful plan for his life. He has an idea of how his prophetic career is going to go, and it does not involve preaching to the wicked Assyrians in Nineveh. He does not want this task, this mission, to work out. He's gonna sabotage it before it ever begins. So now we have a little more of an intimate view of this battle that is raging in Jonah's heart. Jonah knows that the Lord loves to show mercy. He admits it there in that verse, in chapter four, verse two. He also believes that somehow God would find a way to bring the Ninevites to repentance and to extend mercy to them. That does not line up with Jonah's mission, his vision, his idea of what his life should be. It doesn't line up with his plan. Now, when I say the words obey or obedience, what, what pops into your mind? What type of association do you make? Is it positive or negative? I'm gonna assume, I'm just gonna go out on a limb and assume that most of you connect negative emotions to these words. Because essentially, obedience isn't a positive idea in our culture, right? I mean, ugh, don't start talking about obedience. That's, that's scary stuff. You're gonna tell people what to do. And so with that mindset for many, when they read the story, when they hear this story, thoughts pop into their head. Like, oh, there goes that tyrannical God again, ordering people around again, telling Jonah exactly what to do and how to do it. He sure seems to love bossing people around in the Bible. That's the idea that many people have about God. But can you blame them? Can you blame them? Because many of their parents were that way. And that's typically who teaches us about God is our parents, right? 
And so it's, it would make sense that people would project these ideas of their earthly parents upon their heavenly father. But the actual picture of God presented in the Bible is quite different. There are many ways that God could have gone about bringing his word to Nineveh, but he chose to ask Jonah to partner with him. He could have called down from the clouds or caused the very rocks themselves to cry out or bring animals in to do all of the preaching. We see these types of miraculous things happen sometimes in the Bible, but more regularly, we see God choosing people. God wants to work through people. He wants to work through you and through me. That is what is happening here. God is inviting Jonah to step into a journey of life that is bigger, riskier, broader, and more wild than anything that he could ever imagine. Jonah has a vision for his life, and then here comes God calling him into a different direction, and Jonah simply isn't interested. I think that we all need to make a shift in our minds when we think about obeying and obedience, especially when it comes to obeying God. Because the root of the issue is that we all have our own vision of what our life should look like. We have our own plan and our own concept of what the good life is. And we go through our lives working according to that vision. Then Jesus comes along and he says, follow me, follow me. We and God have competing visions of what we think our life should look like. And if we're being brutally honest, if we're doing some self-assessment here, we know that there are things that we are doing in our life that are actually not leading towards life. There's no life in it at all. When God calls his people, we are confronted with a choice. Are we gonna settle for the path of life that we are on? What we call life? Or are we going to choose this new invitation to a different life, a better life, maybe a more scarier life, but a life that God has laid out for us? Right here in the book of Jonah, we have an expose on the reality of human brokenness. We all have a checklist when God comes knocking, right? Yeah, God, I go to church on Sabbath or Sunday and you know I attend a Wednesday night Bible study every so often. I'm good, I'm progressing, I'm growing. And we think that we're doing pretty good or that we're involved or whatever, yet there's this clear and glaring area in our lives where we know that we are being called to change and to grow and we just won't do it. Not willing, not willing. People, especially religious people, us, we're able to compartmentalize our lives. Yes, Jesus, I'm willing to do those things. But these things, no, I'm, I'm not gonna do these things. Just be happy with those things, Jesus. That's totally how we operate though, right? Like we feel good about these things that we're doing, but what about those things? The core issue is this. Here's the prophet Jonah, this religious man who, when we really get right down to it, has his own vision or plan for his life. And when God challenges that, Jonah books it to Tarshish. 
The sad irony here is that Jonah thinks he's running for his life, but he's really running from his life. He thinks God is ruining all of his plans. But just look at the opportunity that he had to be involved with. An outpouring of God's grace on a scale and which the world had never seen before, but he missed out on being that forerunner and enjoying it because he thought he knew better. What an outdated and irrelevant story, right? (laughs) We could never relate to this sort of thing, right? There was sarcasm in what I just said. I don't know if if you guys picked that up. This story is so relevant. It's maybe too relevant. Makes us uncomfortable when we really sit and stay with this story. Now, I don't have kids, but I work with them on a number of occasions. I'm gonna be helping out at VBS, doing some storytelling. And coming up in a few weeks, I will be embarking on my fourth journey as one of the leaders in the primary division at camp meeting. Um, So what that is, is, you know, it's two weekends in a week, and on some days, up to 100 kids crammed into one small room, all aged six through nine. And don't fool yourself into believing that there aren't some five-year-olds that sneak into that room as well. And what I've realized is that raising kids or working with kids is pretty much like being a rescue person every single day. You're constantly having to save kids from mortal danger. And they have their own concept of what the good life entails, right? They have their own plan for life, and then here we come trying to save them. In their minds, we're stopping them. We're taking away all their fun. But in actuality, we are saving their life, and that is exactly what is happening in the story of Jonah. God wants Jonah to participate in this marvelous event of his grace and his mercy coming to this people that nobody would have guessed it would have come to. But Jonah is so focused on his own life plan that he can't even see it. He's blind to its significance. And it's pretty clear to me that this is the same boat, pardon my pun, that we find ourselves in when we are confronted with the decision to follow Jesus. This is our story. This is our experience. This is our reality. And in a way, this whole issue with obedience and God's call, it's summed up at the cross. Because when Jesus calls us to follow him, he's calling us to see that he was the faithful human being. He was the faithful covenant keeper, the faithful partner of God that none of us ever was or ever fully will be. And he lived for us in a way that we could never live. And he died to absorb the entire weight of all the sin and all the terrible and silly decisions that we make when we run from life, when we run according to our vision of the good life. And in his mercy and in his love, he conquered it all by rising from the grave to offer us life and grace and forgiveness. When we come to Jesus, there's a death that takes place. And it's the death of our vision of the good life, our vision of what our life is about. Being a Christian means allowing our vision of what our life is about 
to die. And it may be that some of the things that we have to give up on the way, we're gonna be able to pick them up later once again, but with an entirely different perspective because now it's not our little story that's at the center. Now it's the story of Jesus who's at work in the world and he's inviting us to take part, to play a role. So could it be that the vision we have for our own lives is simply too small? And Jesus is inviting us to something bigger, bolder, and better? For some of us, we might have patterns, patterns of behavior that we need to stop, patterns of thinking or ways of acting that don't lead to life. And we know it, but we're scared to let go of them because that's what we know. That's the only life that we know. And following Jesus is going to involve allowing that to die. And who knows what our life is gonna look like on the other side of that. It's the choice we all have. For others of us, it might not be stopping behaviors, but it might be starting new behaviors that lead to life. So that's it. That's part one of a few gut punches from the book of Jonah. There are probably many areas in your life where you are doing great. You are doing good, fantastic. But if we're, once again, still being honest, self-aware, we realize that there are other places in our life where we are straight up running from God. I guarantee that everyone in this room and everyone watching at home have at least one area in our life where we're just booking it to Tarshish. And if we want to experience this so-called abundant life that Jesus preaches and teaches and talks about, we need to give it up, let it go, stop running, And some of us need to make that decision today, right now. So I encourage you right now, if you've got some area in your life that you know you need to stop running from God in, you've got an area in your life where you need to just accept his view of what life should be, just raise your hand with me right now. You're saying, God, I wanna stop running and love your mercy. I trust your plan for my life in all things and I completely Commit my life to you. Let's seal these commitments with prayer. Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the story of Jonah because in this story, we see ourselves. And Lord, you have a way towards life that we don't always understand, we don't always comprehend. It's sometimes scary, but Lord, we don't know what's best for ourselves but you do. Give us a new heart that we would accept that you know what's best and that we would be willing to stop running, to stop paying our fare to Tarshish, but instead to settle, even if it's in the belly of a big fish, even if it's going into the most wicked city, that we would settle and trust you that you know what is best for our lives. Lord, show us those areas that we need to give over to you And through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the willingness to let go, to hand it over, and to trust you completely. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and we ask that you would help this to be our experience. Amen.